Hello and welcome to another installment of Bar Talk Podcast, bringing you everything you need to know about law via discussions, interviews, and news updates. Welcome to another edition of the Omaha Bar Association podcast. My name is Dave Summers, Executive Director of the Omaha Bar Association. Today we are welcoming into the studios Judge Lyle E. Strom, judge on the U.S. District Court for the District of Nebraska here in Omaha. Judge Strom began his legal practice back in 1953 and joined the court in 1985 and has been on the bench for the past 32 years. Judge Strom, can you take us back and tell us how you got to be at Fitzgerald Shore Law Firm in 1953? Well, at that time it was Fitzgerald, Hamer, Brown, and Leahy. Bob Hamer was the trial attorney in the group. Jim Fitzgerald, of course, was the primary source of the business. And then uh, Jim Brown was an outstanding tax lawyer. And Joe Leahy did the real estate. Uh, matters, <clears throat> but it, it, when I gra- when I was I graduated first in my class at Creighton, and so I, I got a lot of opportunities to look for jobs uh, just because of the, uh, the situation. And I went up and interviewed them, and uh, they offered me a job. And uh, you know, I was tickled to death to get it. And I think I think my salary. It was $250 a month, which I really was really good in those days. Yeah. This was a good sound. But money went a lot further back in the 50s. Uh, my wife and I lived in that project in South Omaha, and we had uh, two children, two girls at the time. But uh, the family grew after that, of course. <laughs> and then, so I joined the firm right upon graduation. Now, we graduated from Law school. We finished law school in May, like they do now. Uh, the either the last week of May or the first week of June, we took the bar examination, and we knew by Wednesday of that week whether we passed or not. And on Friday, we were sworn in, and that is two or three weeks after we graduated from law school. Wow. Uh- that that's a totally different situation than it is now, for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely, they well, the exams are always in the fall. It's in many cases, well, I don't understand why it. But and we took the, uh, took that exam, and as I recall, everybody in our class and I had a I did not have a large class. I think there's only 24 of us in the class. But everybody uh, passed the bar exam, and uh, very few of them are still living today. That's the interesting thing. I see the picture down at at Creighton. I I took a picture of it the other day. Um, It is a smaller class, for sure. I am blessed. I am blessed with longevity, and I'm not poorly, but I don't understand. And what I really think the case is, uh, I I don't like to broadcast it too much because it's sort of a negative. God has seen me down here, and He doesn't want me anywhere around. <laughs> well, I, I haven't gained—I haven't ga- gained the favor of He who makes the choice. I guess, but uh, who knows? 
but and uh, I, I say I think it was 250 a month we started at, and our salaries really grew pretty well in the next 15 or 20 years things picked up quite a bit and what did you pay for the law school well, semester it was pretty I think my memory, and this could be wrong, it could be less, it could be, I think it was $400 a semester. I mean, the kids that are graduating today, you know, are getting it, getting paid in the neighborhood of several thousand dollars a month. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's a lot different than $250 a month, but everything's different. So, so when you started practicing um, in 53, it general litigation for the most no, part? No, I, I really was just the Lowe's lawyer. I did red abstracts. I, I, I just did general work, hardly anything to do with litigation or trial work. And then Bob Hamer was, and, his, and just from an historical point of view, uh, Bob Hamer came from a family of lawyers. His father was a member of the Supreme Court of Nebraska. And uh, uh, he was his, his no, not his grandfather was the Supreme Court justice. His father was general counsel for UP, and so he got a job with UP and was in charge of their litigation in the western half of the United States. How he and Jim Fitzgerald ever met or came together, I don't know, but he he and Jim Brown and Joe Leahy and were uh, the original uh, partners in, in the firm. And uh, at some stage along the way, uh, Fitzgerald came in to see me, and he said, uh, uh, told me that uh, they were having uh, some problems, that Bob Hammer was getting so much work, would I be willing uh, to go and work with him in litigation for a while? And I know I never wanted to do that because I didn't think I would enjoy it. But I went over uh, and started working with him, and then he started giving so many cases to try, and I discovered that, uh, the, in the sense, the love of my life, and in the sense of work, and so I never, uh, I, I was in litig, I've been in litigation ever since that, and, uh, and then Hamer died very suddenly in 1957-58, right in that period of time. Uh, we were all working down at the office, and I don't forget exactly what I was working on, but. I heard this noise and I look out and he had collapsed on the floor. And so we called an ambulance. Jim Brown happened to be there too, and as one of the partners, he, is, he accompanied the ambulance to the hospital. Uh, but uh, Bob Hamer was dead on, dead on arrival at the hospital. And then uh, right after that, Fitzgerald called me into his office. And apparently he was getting good reports from on my uh, the work I was doing and asked me if I would be willing to take over that I, and I wasn't too sure but I did because I knew it was uh, an advancement but once I really got into litigation and got into that uh, it never occurred to me that I'd ever want to do anything else uh, either, and that's been pretty true with this job even as a federal uh, trial judge uh, litigation is sort of the center of the whole uh, transaction. So, and that's how I got into that. Yeah. Now, the next story I, I would have of any significance was the appointment to the uh, district court, to, to the district court position. And uh, 
I had been I was trying a case out in North Platte or not North Platte out at Kearney I think it was at the time either that or up at the North the Sioux City that's up to the north there but and well, I, I can tell you, I have a, a letter from Hal Dobb putting forward your name and Arlen Beam's name. I, I got it from the Reagan Presidential Library. I got a copy of it, and obviously that first one went to went to Arlen. Um, first first spot went to Arlen, but he had put your name out there first, yeah. and so he, he he was he was doing it. That that's that is what happened because I was traveling back from. Uh, uh, out in the central part of the state to Omaha, I learned about uh, the death, and I knew there was a vacancy, and so uh, Haldob and I go back quite a few years, and I called him. Well, in fact, I hired Hal at one time, and he worked for me at the Fitzgerald Law Firm really? as an attorney. But he came to me one day, and he said, you know, the litigation is interesting, but this this isn't really my cup of tea. He had broader and greater things in mind and so we said but uh, he, he he called me or I called him and he said well you will be my choice except I have made a promise to one other purpose, person and if they decide they want the job I, I've agreed to, to uh, have them be my candidate and I said well hell let me know uh, uh, just let me know what happens and about a week later he called me and said to the fellow Turned his job. He doesn't want the job at all. He did want it, but he doesn't anymore. He said so. He took over and he and he prepared all the documents and submitted them. And um, yeah, so I got the appointment. Was sworn in and I was sworn in in 1985, I think. Yeah. And going back out of order here, way back to the beginning, why why did you go to law school? Why did you? want to become a lawyer okay. to begin with. I, I don't have that story yet. Well, a part of it I'll give to you, but it, it, I might ask you later. <laughs> uh, I, I went to North High School. I had a twin brother that two of us were in North High School. Mm-hmm. And I was so sick of school. I, I, I couldn't wait to get out. And the war came. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, this is my chance. But, they, but I had to finish high school. And I was at North, and that meant I had to go till the fall. I would be having to take the spring, fall semester before I could graduate. No, I couldn't graduate till the following January, uh, which was about where we were when this subject came up. And but in any event, uh, I I, uh, I decided I decided I wanted to get in involved in the war, mm-hmm. and so I transferred to Tech High School. That got me out about three months earlier than I would from another school. <laughs> that's that's eager. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, then I went down to join the uh, uh, U.S. Navy Reserve. Uh, they weren't employing for the regular Navy; it was for the reserve for the war. And I couldn't pass the eye test. My eyes were too bad, and so they rejected me. And I had left that. The premises were, were those, and, and I can't remember now where I went to take those tests. And I ran into one of my teachers from Tech High School, whose name I don't remember anymore, but he was he was uh, at, at, at teaching me in the field of electricity. That's what he was teaching at uh, Tech High School at the time. 
him. So I, uh, he, I ran into him. And he said, what's the matter? You look pretty despondent. And I said, I really am. The war started. I wanted to get into it. wanted to join the Navy. And I went down to take the, uh, the physical exam, and I, I couldn't pass it. Well, he said, uh, well, have you, what about the Merchant Marine? And I said, who are they? <laughs> you know? And he told me that they were the people that uh, operated the uh, ships during peacetime and so forth. And I, he said, why don't you try them? And I said, oh, that's fine. I said, where do I go? He says, well, you've got to, you've got to go down and take a physical to get into the Navy, Navy Reserve. And I said, well, I just flunked that test. And he said, well, give these guys a chance. You know, the Merch Marine was just screaming for people. Yeah. And I, wa I wanted to become a radio operator, and that's the area I was in. So I went down, and of course, I passed that test. I'm now in the U.S. Naval Reserve. Then I'm sent to Gallup's Island, which is in uh, off of Boston, Mass in not Boston Harbor, of Boston, Massachusetts. And uh, for we went to school for, for sometime in January, graduating uh, sometime in the late summer, summer or early fall, August, September, sometime frame. At which time we had completed the training and taken the tests and become certified to be uh, telegraphers. Merchant Marine, and then I was assigned to ships, and I, I was in the Pacific, and I was in the Atlantic, and the Mediterranean, and I never got over, I guess I had one trip over to, to Aitland, um, but as a radio operator, and it, it was a, that was a nice job, and, and I, I enjoyed it, and then the war ended, and by then, I had met too many people who had college degrees, and realized that my desire not to have any more education had to be pushed aside. And I, I had to have a college education if I expected to be successful, and so I came back and then uh, went on. Uh, I started the University of Nebraska. It, it, it was a study of, of government and uh, so forth. But this class, is in Lincoln or Omaha? It was in Lincoln. Yeah. And the class was so large, we did it in auditorium. We sat there and it was like going to a speech. You know, you couldn't ask questions, you couldn't do anything. And I said, well, this isn't any good. And so at the end of that semester, I transferred to Creighton University. And all of my classes there were like 25 uh, to 30 students per class. And some really great teachers, too. And uh, so uh, I majored in, in philosophy and in world history. And, uh, and then decided that uh, I wanted to become a lawyer. And so I went on then to uh, law school at Creighton. And was lucky enough, I, the class was small enough, I guess. I graduated first in the class. And, uh, and that's when the Fitzgerald, Hammer, Brown, and Lee firm hired me uh, as a, a lawyer in their firm. I really became enamored in the law when I, uh, during the war, because number one, I met the, the, a lot of the people that were involved with me were college graduates. And, you know, you could see the comparison. You really could not quit with just a high school education. You had to go on. And I, somewhere in there, 
I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. And I'm, I'm not no longer sure exactly what events uh, led up to that, but by the time I finished my undergraduate and got my undergraduate degree, I, I had already I had applied to Creighton Law School uh, for their and their cl this class was one of the first after the war, and it was uh, we had 25 students in our class. It was and the building at the time, not the, not the building the, we're in now. No, it was it, you know where that old building is. Well, if you're on uh, California Street. And, and you got the ch the churches here. Mm -hmm. The, the university's building is here. Mm -hmm. The church is here. And then if you go on down beyond that to the bottom, you know there are a couple of uh, student buildings. Yeah. And the one uh, on the what you would be on the east side of the street. Right. Was uh, their law school. Okay. And, and that's so. And I think all three years of my law school were in that building. It was just at the end of that that they moved to their new quarters that they have now. Yeah. You've taught classes at Creighton, too. Huh? You've yeah. taught classes there. I taught at Creighton, let's see, I graduated in the five, uh, in, uh, up to about sometime, I think, maybe through the 60s. It seems to me that it was sometime. Um, I taught there for about two or three, maybe four years mm -hmm. in, in the law school. It, I've been lucky. I, you know, the war was a, in some respects, was, I, I would have never gone to college but for the war. Right. If I had not met these other men and realized that we were in two <laughs> different uh, worlds, you know, almost, I, I don't know that it would occur to me to go on. I might have taken some yeah. pecuniary job somewhere and, and a few dollars. I might have been better off. <laughs> <laughs> So I've read about that you have a, a strong history with the Boy Scouts. Were you a Boy Scout when, when you were a kid, or is this just a later well, in life? No, I just, uh, I had two sons, mm -hmm. uh, and I felt that the scouting program, was, and one of them became an Eagle Scout, that's Brian the Yugas. Uh, and David was in scouting for a while, but his friends didn't do scouting, and that, and scouting, and, uh, if you have a son or that you want to get into scouting, it's kind of you got to the thing you do. You got to get him to start playing with people that are in the scouting group. It's not something that at least my oldest son Dave and Dave's smart. He's on the faculty in Indianapolis, Indiana University, the Catholic University there, which is relatively new but Dave was never interested because his friends weren't interested sure were you were you a, like a troop leader at some I, point I was a scout master for scout master? years wow. for uh, I don't know how many years but I would say 10 or 15 at least somewhere maybe more yeah it, it's hard to say I, I I enjoyed scouting and in my my and Brian who became an Eagle Scout is he lives in London He's still, he's back involved in scouting there. He's a scoutmaster now in London. So that's a good deal. <laughs> and he just, he and his wife just had twin grandsons. They're gonna be a year old here in about a month or so. And I've seen them once or twice, but they're all gonna be here for the celebrations. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's wonderful, yeah. wow. Um, we're all gonna go, we're all, the whole gang is gonna go out to Western Nebraska for the eclipse. 
right in a month right yeah Yeah, we've rented a whole field so we're going to camp the whole group is going to camp hopefully I have good weather (laughs) I've camped in bad weather (laughs) your time on the court what has been what what's the most um, gratifying thing that that you've you've you can talk about on the court I enjoy drawing cases let me say that Mm -hmm. and 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 in those days we tried cases I had one case that I think of often now uh, because of the difference between today and then. And we represent, as a firm, I rep- we represented uh, Eastern Airlines, who's now out of business, but not because of their lawyers, <laughs> and represented Greyhound Bus Company. I had a lot of, had a lot of suits uh, for Greyhound. And, they, and Greyhound, uh, you know, they were good clients because they... they they were interested in doing if they weren't liable they wanted they didn't want to pay anything and, and back in those days the big companies they did not want to go to tri- uh, trial they I mean uh, uh, they wanted to go to trial they didn't want to just give in like they do to, today it's a matter of economics what's the cheapest way out it's going to cost us whether we settle or not it's going to cost us this much money if we can get out for cheaper than what it would cost to try it, let's do that and, and get rid of the cases. So it isn't as much fun, I don't think, today as it was then. Although we have, we seem still seem to have plenty of trials going on. So I, uh, I remember I had a case for Greyhound, which a bus driver, I think, had been drinking, lost control, and hit a telephone pole out in uh, western Omaha. And this fella ended up with a broken leg or something, and uh, he sued Greyhound. We looked the case over, and, and I told Greyhound, <coughs> I thought they probably would be held liable, and they said, well, what can we settle it for? And I said, well, you people have do these cases all the time. What do you think it's worth? And he said, I think it, it, with everything he has, I think the, it, it's worth no more than thirty thousand dollars, probably in the twenty-five to thirty range. So I went to the other lawyer, and of course, he'd like to have a lot of money. But Greyhound was willing to go to trial if they couldn't settle the case. And when he understood that, and we talked a while, he came back. He said, "Well, what I'll have to have is thirty thousand dollars." So I settled the case, you know. Uh, I wouldn't have even been involved in it today if I represent their their people would have been out and settled that case and that was true with all of even Eastern Airlines and I had a number of cases and most of them were pending out in the eastern part of the United States a number of cases out there that I tried for Eastern Airlines but they did the same thing I mean they they want. They didn't want to pay in. They didn't want to pay out money just to get out of it, unless they were at fault. If they were at fault, then they do it. So mm-hmm. they were willing to put the, put that on the line. The, the calculation has changed. Um, it seems like from from that to trying to trying to settle everything, right? Yeah, that, yeah. That's right. I think. I, but it, today the thing is an economic issue. What's what's the cheapest way? Now we've got the lawsuit. We're gonna. It's probably gonna cost us something. What's the cheapest 
a, a, a solution to this problem. Now, if there's one that's got a real problem with liability and so forth, it's cheaper. But even if uh, if they were there was no real fault at all, they're still going to spend money defending it, and they just soon settle it and get rid of it and then be bothered with it. Mm -hmm. Now, that would not have been true back in the fifties uh, and the sixties when I was representing Greyhound and Eastern Airlines and God knows who And you've had um, uh, dozens of clerks now um, over your time and uh, I know I think that I've had forty. Forty forty somewhere in the thirties, maybe forty. I, my last two law groups are there right now. I mean it seems like they're part of the family. They're they're really family. They're they're close after those two years, and and we have a I have a hamburger steak fry every year uh, at a place down in uh, near the uh, uh, Platte River, and uh, I, I all of, all of the law clerks are invited. Some of them are in New York. Some are in Washington. They're not not all around, but I would usually have. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 30 of the law clerks back here, and uh, with their families, we get a chance to meet and see. So, and we do that once a year. I've done it. Got to, I can't remember when I started, but it was a long time ago. <laughs> You're golfing today. Yeah. You're still swimming. What's What's the secret to your I, I don't know. To, to your doing these I, activities? The only thing I can figure out is God has absolutely no interest. Am I entering his? <laughs> I think my, mine is a fairly normal life, yeah. and why I I had a twin brother. He's been deceased now for about ten years, and my sister and, and her husband are both deceased, and, and of course, uh, Louis, yeah, and his wife Bonnie. They're both they're both deceased, so. Uh, but Lou became a, uh, a, uh, a lawyer also uh, with, uh, you invent something and you want to, inventing a, uh, inventing a product and then you get a certificate from the, you get a certification from the federal government. Right, the, the uh, um, patent and trademark office? Patent and trademark, yeah. yeah. Oh, he, he was... He was a patent and trademark lawyer. That's a plum job. Yeah. He, yeah, and he's uh, he was at a hit private practice. It was it really worked well with me because he was not in litigation. Of course, I wasn't in patent and trademark. The part that he was involved in, which was the applications for and obtaining uh, the patents uh, or trademarks, whichever you were after with the for his clients. But if they got into litigation, then he then I'd get involved with him on that. Did you talk him into law school? No, I think he for a long time uh, he wasn't interested, in, and then all of, he got interested. I see. I I think and uh, went to law school maybe ten years after I did, and he went to Creighton also. And but he always wanted to be a patent lawyer and was. What um, what advice do you have for? Well, let's start with law law students and, and new new lawyers. What advice do you? you give them? You've enjoyed a long career um, practicing law and as a judge and what's the secret to having them enjoy a, a long career? 
Well, the law is just a great profession to begin with. And, and uh, by and large, all of the people in it are really great people. I mean, we, we, we got our bad was just like everyone else does. I often tried to go back and think, oh, and I, I, I don't know if I told you this earlier or not, I decided to become a lawyer during the war because two of the men that I was associated with getting trained as a radio operator were, uh, uh, were lawyers. Uh, they had, had law degrees. And I could see the difference between them and me. I mean, uh, it, it would, you just felt like you were in a different world almost. And that is really when I decided, by God, I, I'm going to have to go to law school if I want to do what I want to do. You know, it, it, you actually, it's, it, as a young person, somewhere in, while you're in high school, or a, you've got to make a decision what you want to do with your life, and, and what is it do you enjoy? What things do you enjoy? And some people like, the, for example, some people want to be inventors, and that's not, it may be a hard life, but uh, you know, and there are lawyers that just specialize in patents and trademarks, and that would drive me up the wall. But yeah, every once in a while, you're going to get involved in that guy. You really have to take a look at your life. Uh, and, and what is it that you enjoy doing that you think yeah, you would be comfortable in uh, and, uh, if you, uh, and make a, if you can make a living? And then you got to take a look at what are my, what opportunities would I have a job here or a job there if I were to go to law school or go to engineering school or some other school and get so trained. Actually, the kids ought to be, by the time they're in college, they ought to have a pretty good idea what they want to do with their lives so that they can direct their education to promote that particular occupation or whatever it may be. But you know, you have to make the you have to decide what it is you want to do, and then once you've made that decision, you really got to put your heart into the whole thing because that, that's your life. Well, that's a great um, great answer. You know, it, it takes passion, but it takes you know the practical nature of it too. You know, it, you can you can be passionate about something, but it, it you got to you got to make money and and you, you know yeah. you got to find a way to make it successful in some way. And you know, the, the law is a great profession. I can't, I, as I look back on it, I can't conceive I would have ever thought of anything else, but that's, that's uh, as easy as saying, but <laughs> So, how'd you get into the Omaha Bar Association? The firm uh, encouraged us to be active in the bar, and so uh, from the beginning, uh, I attended meetings and, and was involved. As I understand it, when you came in was right right at the beginning of Mardi's time, and so uh, uh, Mardi Cornick, oh, yes. um, you yeah. know, she had just come into yeah. that role. So up to that point, it had been the work had basically been done by the president alone, yeah. and and then for a number of years, the president would house the um, lawyer referral service. Yeah. Um, so it'd be kind of a rotating 
sort of um, a situation with that. So, I so the fact say, that I was saved from all. Yeah, the fact the fact that the um, that Mardi came in yeah. and so then became the staff person yeah. for that, it really changed the dynamic. Yeah. You know, I'd from been, I'd been on the what do you call your the board? Right, the executive council. Yeah, yeah. I've been on the executive council for a year or two years before I became president. Yeah. and uh, it, I, as I recall, uh, there was a lot. A lot of interest in in strengthening the bar, and uh, we felt that you had to we had to get an executive director in there who spent full time at doing it because uh, otherwise lawyers were doing it. They could only do it part time, and only if they didn't have something else to do. When I start thinking about my career, and I go back to nineteen fifty three, yeah, and then. Uh, First 47 years, and I got it. And I was president of the Omaha Bar Association. It was 1980, 81. Uh, around there, around and there. And then the yeah. president. Who'll be turned in a wallet, of, of the state bar of, uh, in 1990, 1991. Right. I remember, I remember uh, who was our executive director. God, he was a great guy. Oh, it was before Jane Chenicky. Yeah. Right. You remember the name? Oh. You, did you ever have any touch, any connection? No. He, he was terrific, but he was a hard worker. And you know, he died as he lived. He, he never, if something finished, he drove home. No matter what time of night it was, and one night he fell asleep at the wheel and drove oh. into the river and drowned, I think. Oh my gosh. But uh, we, when I became president of the Bar Association, that was either 90 or 91. We decided that we would do a tour of, uh, of a number of the bar so state uh, local bar associations in the state, and we started out in southeastern Nebraska. Um, his name's going to come to me, I know. And we got out there uh, for our first meeting, and it was a good meeting. There was about forty or forty-five lawyers yeah. present at the time, and uh, they introduce me and in the, in the meantime God, what was this? He, he came to me he said wow we do have a little problem there are a lot of people in western Nebraska that don't think uh, that the well I was the chief judge at that time of the district court here in Nebraska mm -hmm. uh, think that uh, a federal judge should be Leading the state bar association. Interesting. Were you the first um, yeah. judge to, to to run as the bar? As far as I know, I yeah. think that's true. So they introduced me, and I got up and looked at them. I said, I, I said, I want everybody here to understand that I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. And God, that just <laughs> broke the ice, you know. Uh, and it really was a great trip because we were there. Up through northeastern and uh, northwestern and northeastern Nebraska, yeah. and then back. And you know, he uh, he lived. Uh, there's a university there. He lived in south and east, south and west of Omaha, a little town. But he, uh, I, I tell you, he had to drive. He, even if he drove until four in the morning, I thought, my God, someday he's going to fall asleep. And that's what he did. He fell asleep. Wow. We had our main meetings like we do, you do here. 
I think that the president of the State Bar Association today does a, does a lot more local meetings than we did back in those days. And I think it's a good thing, frankly. Uh, uh, particularly like uh, uh, Joe Battaglia. He's president of the Nebraska State Bar Association. And there's a lot of people who don't think federal judges should do that. And we've got, it's our job to get out there and let them know. Well, we're no different than anybody else, you know. And it's, this is a job, and we've got different rules and different regulations. But by and large, we're all in this business together. Each has his own area of expertise, hopefully, that are, are helpful. So it works out pretty well. Bar Association is far better organized, I think, today than it was back in 1980, yeah, 1990, I should say. When I, it was the late 80s and the 90s when I really began starting getting really involved. Yeah. Um, well, it, it's been great to um, have you involved in, in the Omaha Bar Association and State I, Bar. I really haven't done much for you. <laughs> no, no. Um, I, you, you have you, you sh you've shown up and oh, yeah. um, been present helps, while that, being there. Yeah. yeah. If that helps, that's what we should be doing. Yeah, it's 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 important just to be there, and you know we we have um, we always have new people every year coming into the bar, and you've shown up and been willing to talk to a, a new uh, attorney, and that's that's huge. Yeah. It helps. Yeah. Everything helps. In a sense, you know, we're, we've all we've all should be having generally the same goals. I think, as far as uh, of course, when everybody's in it. They're trying to make a living and so forth. But uh, you got to have principles in your life, and you got to live by them. Or you may make a lot of money, but I don't see how you can ever be happy with yourself if if you've done it in some way that kind of smells a little bit. It's nice to make a lot of money. It's nice to have it, I'm sure. Uh, I've been fortunate. I've always been pretty much in a position where I've not, except when we were first married and starting with that, we had two small daughters and $250 a month. But boy, $250 a month went along. We lived in a project down in, in South Omaha. It's, it's still down there, that South Omaha housing project. Where was that? Where was Fitzgerald Shore at the time? They were in the. Uh, at that time, they were in the insurance building. The insurance building was the building that was torn down to build the Woodman Tower. Oh, okay. So it was right at that site, and we were on the tenth floor of the building. And so when this building was completed, uh, and we came back to it, we had the tenth floor. <laughs> and, and, and that was that was no not no longer near the top though, right? No, it was no longer <laughs> near the top. And then, of course, when we first did, they had a they had a bar up at the top with that Woodman Tower at the top. You could go up there in the evening, have a drink, and see our building sway in the wind. You know, that, always, <laughs> that always made me nervous, but I know they're built to do that. Right. Otherwise, so. <laughs> one last um, question is: Why are you so involved? Why have you been so involved in? national mock trial, in Nebraska mock trial, in, in the national, why, why is that so important well, to you? Well, uh, two reasons. Uh, uh, primarily because 
it's a, a source of education uh, for high school students uh, uh, to teach them a little bit about what the law is all about and how trials are run. Uh, uh, it, it, it struck me that another very important aspect of it is uh, the kids reach times of the year when they have a lot of free time not to do anything and here they can do something that they can enjoy that's constructive and also educational and it keeps, as I tell people, it keeps them off the streets and out of the bars. And in a sense, the, the, mot the motivating factors for me on, on the high school mock trial pro program was number one, to give the students a productive and helpful program for some in the summer that they could attend if they wanted to that I thought was better than their being on the streets. And secondly, and maybe just as, maybe more important, is to teach them a little bit about what the law is all about. What is our law? How do we enforce our laws? How do we pass them? How do we protect people from unreasonable uh, application of the laws? And all of that comes up in the, in the uh, and then if, if, and not, if they don't get anything else out of it, the idea that they have to learn to work together as a unit put together their trial and present it. So uh, I, I feel like in many respects uh, that program is probably one of the best things I've been involved with. How, how much, I know I w I've been in it from the beginning, I can't say I'm the one that, that, that decided that we should have meetings and see if we do this. I, I think the State Bar Association addressed that a little bit and I, I became involved. I'm not the first person to say this, I don't know, but those kids, those yeah, young adults remarkable. are so much better than much many of us. They're remarkable. Oh they my goodness. Remarkable. And you know, and, and you know some of them are not going to become lawyers, they're like, oh, hey, you know, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be, you know, I'm not going to be a lawyer, but they, they can just run circles around some of us in the courtroom, it seems like, and uh, that's, that's fabulous to see young people this, doing this that. This program is now, you know, Nebraska was in it almost from the beginning. The first trials I remember were out in, you know, we were, they were over in Iowa, I think. But uh, uh, that goes way, and that goes back quite in the future. Today, the National High School Mock Trial Project is a, one of the best programs I think the country has, and it, it really, I think, it really helps young people to be doing something that's educational. Many respects in areas they'll never ever get any education, and it keeps them from getting involved in doing things that are just dumb or bad or and, both. And and in, in you know in my my opinion, uh, selfishly as as a bar association person, I want those really smart kids that that are doing this at Marion or or yeah. you know Duchenne all that. I I want them to see. Being successful at this level and being like, okay, yeah, I, I you know, I have aptitude for the law. I, I have this background, and maybe go into being a lawyer. I, I want those people to see it as we have quite a few a good people. profession. Yeah, and I'll tell you, those kids would put some trial lawyers. To the other thing that I like about the program is it gets adult attorneys involved in doing something. Make, should make them feel good 
helping these kids and learning. You know, it's surprising where you learn things for God's sake. Absolutely. Well, it's just completely positive, and you, you mentioned it earlier. And I Actually, that's probably the best thing that came with this job. Because <laughs> she was Duke Schatz's. Right, and she, I think she, and she worked with uh, the former chief judge of the Eighth Circuit, uh, Don Lay. Don Lay, yeah, yeah, right. She she worked with Judge Lay yeah. for a while. Lay and I were, were good friends. Yeah, he was he just a different person. Did you ever <laughs> meet him? No, yeah. no. What was he like? Smart, very very smart. He would teach you Lay and. The, Don Lee and I, and there are two, two uh, circuit judges down in uh, Arkansas. Arkansas. Okay. Arkansas. Two judges, uh, they were brothers. Brilliant. Uh, one was, would have been a, a member of the Supreme Court of the United States, but his health, he, he couldn't take it because of his health, and died shortly thereafter, so mm-hmm. which was uh, uh, proof of the pudding, I guess. And uh, but his uh, brother was also a member of the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. And I, I, she she worked for Don Lay for a while. Yeah. So, but, but that that was when Duke Schatz had died, mm-hmm. and Don Lay uh, uh, wanted to keep her. Uh, wanted to keep her on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she's she's without question best secretary, I mean, I've had really had some wonderful people as secretary, but uh, she's organized, she's bright, and she gets things done, but for her I'd be in deep doo-doo most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can say say the same here, uh, because she helps us with all our events, and without her, I I don't think we'd we'd be able to, to do these events yeah. because she, she's been here for she, she gets things done yeah. and she's right and, uh, <laughs> and, and that concludes our interview with Judge Lyle Strom on October 3rd 2017 Judge Strom and Judge Riley from the 8th Circuit Court of Appeals will be celebrated at a dinner at the Livestock Exchange Building for more information please go to www.omahabarassociation.com.